Good morning. Welcome again. Thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence. To those who are visiting, as always, we encourage you to come back. We're so thankful that you've come our way. We've been blessed to have visitors again. We're grateful that many are coming back, and we hope and pray that the trend will continue. We're going to be looking in our study today at 2 Samuel, specifically chapter 7, as we talk today about the everlasting kingdom of God. And as you think about this theme, I want to just very quickly say at the onset of our study, we're talking primarily about the church and God's promise concerning this great kingdom that was established on Pentecost Day. There are no doubt many people that misunderstand the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have preserved for us some statements made by God through the prophet Nathan to David concerning this eternal kingdom that would be established through his seed line. And so I want to begin our study today, and I want to talk about the focus of prophecy as it relates to the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things that you have to understand when you look at the Scriptures and you look at both the Old and New Testaments, there is really one central theme, and that would be salvation. God ultimately fulfilled His redemptive work through Jesus or through Christ and His church. The two go hand in hand. And so when you talk about Christ and His messianic kingdom, you have to automatically talk about the church, the kingdom that was established by His blood. So I want to look at 2 Samuel in chapter 7. And as we begin looking at this text, and we're going to look at some scriptures that will no doubt help to impress upon us the importance of the kingdom of God and the establishment of the kingdom that is foretold of here by Nathan the prophet. So look at chapter 7 with me if you would. As we begin noting this prophetic statement, first to understand that David, of course, was the king over Israel, and David had succeeded King Saul. David was a man after God's own heart, and David was probably the greatest king in the history of the Israelite nation. And so in chapter, in chapter 7, David proposes to build a temple, a house, for Almighty God. God had instructed Moses in the long ago to build a tabernacle. Matter of fact, he was to do it according to God's pattern. That tabernacle signified the presence of God to the children of Israel in the long ago. So David proposes to build a temple, a house for God. So note if you would in verses 1 through 3. It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. David here lived in a palace that had been built by King Hiram of Tyre. And David, his thoughts are, he's living in this very spacious palace, a place, no doubt, of grandeur. And he's thinking about the tabernacle 
and the ark and the fact that God's tabernacle or this ark was moving from place to place in a tent. And so David wants to do something for the Lord. He's thinking about what can I do? God's been very good to me. God's blessed me. You know the psalmist in Psalm 116 in about verse 12 asked the question, What shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits toward me? David had a good heart. David's intent was noble. He wanted to do something for the God that had so richly blessed him in his life. And you think about how richly God has blessed you in this life and how you have been abundantly blessed by the Creator. And so in light of that, we might ask the question, what could we do to serve the Lord in a better way? So the king says to Nathan, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan here is not speaking prophetically. At least, he's not speaking for God in this context, in verse 3. But rather, Nathan, upon hearing what the king had to say, responds by saying, You know what, this sounds like a great idea. Why not do it? Well, note if you would in verse 4. In verse 4, we have the prohibition. What David wanted to do was not what God ultimately wanted him to do. So the text says in verse 4, It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me, built me a house of cedar? In other words, God had never required of the children of Israel to build Him a temple or some spacious house to dwell in. And so in verse 8, Therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the, sheep, from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, have cut off all your enemies from before you, have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. You can go back and read where God had delivered the Philistines into the hand of David, at least two times in previous text. In verse 11, he said, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over you, my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that He will make you a house. Now, I want you to look at verse 12. Because now we have a promise or a prophecy spoken of by Nathan. Nathan now is a mouth for God. And Nathan is going to tell David that God's going to build him a house. So listen to what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now let me just pause here for a minute. 
You remember back in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God manifested His grace toward the human family by introducing the promised seed of chapter 3, verse 15. That promised seed had to do with the Messiah, the one who would redeem the human family from sin. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, God used Abraham to be the father of the Hebrew nation. It would be through the lineage of Abraham that this promised seed would emerge. And God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, In you shall all families of the earth be blessed. That promise was fulfilled in Christ, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Paul said, If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise in Galatians 3, 29. So God said, I'm going to run my seed line through Abraham and his family. Abraham had a child of promise, a fellow by the name of Isaac. And then you remember, Isaac had a child by the name of Jacob. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons. The favored son, as you remember, was Joseph. But God was going to run that seed line, not through Joseph, but through Judah. So when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, what God is doing is narrowing the scope. That seed line is going to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now God said, I'm going to run this seed line through the family of David. So, in the New Testament, you read about Jesus being associated with the name, the Son of David. You remember on one occasion Jesus asked the question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He? Well, He was David's son. That is, He came through the family of David. And so, God said, when your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. That is, when death comes upon you. I'm going to set your seed up after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. The kingdom that God is talking about here is the church. And we'll note that in just a moment more specifically. He said, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom, listen to this, forever. The angel said to Mary in the long ago, speaking of the Christ, prior to His birth, that He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And so the idea is Jesus is coming and He's going to be a king. And as a king, He's going to have a kingdom. And this kingdom will be a perpetual kingdom, the perpetuity of the kingdom. Matter of fact, Daniel, you remember in chapter 2, Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And Daniel foretold of four world empires, beginning with Babylon, that would rise and fall in successive order. And so in verse 44 he said, In the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Same kingdom that God's talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This everlasting kingdom of Almighty God. In verse 14, Nathan now talks about the pardon that will, be, that will be effective through the finished work of Jesus. In verse 14, he said, I'll be his father. Speaking of God the Father to Jesus. He's not talking about Solomon here. He said, he shall be my son. 
If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. You remember Isaiah gives us a commentary on the finished work of Christ. And I would maybe make a little footnote out here in this text with regard to the words of Isaiah in chapter 53. When Isaiah said, speaking of the Christ, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's the one that Nathan is talking about here, the Christ. And the fact that through Jesus, people would enjoy redemption through his blood. Now, pick up with me if you would in verse 18. In verse 18, well, let me just pause there, back up and look at verse 16 very quickly. The prophet said, Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan now outlines this marvelous kingdom that's going to come to be. It would ultimately be established on Pentecost Day, as you well know, in Acts chapter 2. In verse 18, the Bible tells us that David, in response to what God said, praised the Lord. It says something about the heart of David. David wanted, had intent to build God a temple, to build him an elaborate house. And yet God said no. Matter of fact, you can go over in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, the reason God prohibited him from building this temple was because he had shed much blood and made, great, and made great wars. David was a man of war. And so, ultimately, in response to what God had said through the prophet to David, David said, you know what? I can't build you a temple but I can still be grateful for all you've done for me, all you've done for the nation. And if you read the record, David contributed mightily to the building of the temple. Matter of fact, gathered an incredible amount of supplies. And so then King David goes in, sits before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you've done all these great things to make your servant know them. Verse 22, he said, You're great, O Lord God. There's none like you, nor is there any God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. In verse 23, David praises God for His work among the children of Israel, who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people, to make for Himself a name, and to do for you great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. So, David is grateful for all that God has done on his behalf and on behalf of the children of Israel. So you think about what God said to David. 
But now with regard to this kingdom that is prophetically spoken of, here's the question. What did the son of David have to say about the kingdom? In other words, what did Jesus have to say about the kingdom that he would establish? You turn over to Matthew chapter 3. You remember John the Baptist who was the forerunner to the Christ. When he began his earthly ministry in the wilderness of Judea, he was preaching a message of repentance. And he said, the kingdom of God is near. In chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus preached about the kingdom. He said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus is pointing the people of His day toward this kingdom. The kingdom that He was talking about, the kingdom that He was preaching about, the very same kingdom that Nathan told David about. The exact kingdom that John the Baptist preached. Same kingdom that Daniel had foretold of. So then in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus makes a promise concerning this kingdom. You remember He had asked the identity? In other words, He had asked people what others were saying about His identity. And they reminded Him. Some were saying He was John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus then asked the disciples, but whom do you say that I am? And the Bible says that Simon Peter spoke up and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, in verse 18, Jesus makes this statement. And I also say unto you that you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. That's an interesting concept that Jesus is talking about. Building His church. In verse 19, He tells the apostles He will give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The word kingdom and church in this context, synonymous. One and the same. Jesus is saying, number one, I will be the founder of the church or the kingdom. Jesus is the one who built the church. That's what He's saying in Matthew 16, verse 18. There is a play on words here. You remember the word Peter. That term in the original is masculine in gender. And it means a small stone. The word rock, however, is feminine in nature. The word rock here means a massive stone. A large ledge of rock. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to build the church. I'm going to be the founder of it. And not only will I be the founder of it, I'll be the foundation of it. So when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. He wasn't saying, I'm going to build the church on you, Peter. What he was saying is, I'm going to build the church on this monumental statement that you've just made, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And based upon that, Jesus said, I'm going to build, listen to him, my church. Jesus is the founder of the church. He is the only one who's ever founded a church, authorized in Scripture. So you have Jesus as the founder of the church and the foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. You remember Paul said, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the founder of the church. 
He is the foundation of the church. And listen, He is the face of the church. The church that we read about in Scripture wears His name and no other. There are a number of biblical terms that are used to identify the church that Jesus founded on Pentecost Day. He bought the church with His own blood, according to Acts 20, verse 28. Paul said he loved the church and gave himself up for it. So with that being said, Jesus founded the church. He's the foundation of the church. And as I said, he is the face of the church. When we think about the New Testament church, we ought to see Jesus. There is no church in existence today that has the right to wear any other name. There is no church that is authorized in Scripture outside the church that you read about in the New Testament. Now, there are a lot of churches in the world today. and There are a lot of folks that are members in bodies that have been established by men. The church that I'm talking about has one founder, one foundation, and one face. So I want you to see now the fulfillment of prophecy regarding the kingdom. You remember during the life of Jesus, as I said a moment ago, He preached about the kingdom. He promised to build the kingdom. Matter of fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus said, There are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the Son of God, Son of Man, coming in His kingdom. In Mark 9, verse 1, Jesus said, There are some of you standing here that shall not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. In Luke 24, prior to His ascension, Jesus told the apostles that He was the fulfillment of everything that had been written about Him in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. Then you remember He said, that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name beginning where? In Jerusalem. So, what Jesus said coincides with what Isaiah the prophet said back in Isaiah chapter 2. That the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. And He said, all nations shall flow into it. Isaiah there seeing the church as an exalted mountain. So, Jesus said to the apostles specifically, Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, you remember in verse 8, Jesus said that they would be witnesses of Him. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. They had asked the question to Him. They had said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples of Christ had grave misunderstandings about the church. They thought of it as a physical entity, as a monarchy that would be here on earth. And Jesus is saying, look, you still don't understand the nature of this kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, spiritual in nature. The children of Israel, they occupied, they occupied a parcel of land in Palestine. And they were God's chosen people. The Israel of God. Well, God's chosen people today are identified by Paul as the Israel of God. But the Israel of God is the church. God's nation of people today 
the church that you read about in the New Testament. So we come to Acts chapter 2. Jesus has ascended to heaven. You've got Pentecost Day. Fifty days, well, Jesus died on a Friday. They observed the Passover on Saturday. Fifty days later, the Lord's church came into being in the city of Jerusalem. So what do you have? Number one, you've got Pentecost Day. You've got all these people that have assembled in Jerusalem for the purpose of observing this Jewish feast. And the Bible says that there appeared, out of nowhere I guess we would say, tongues sitting upon the apostles. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. God's power evidenced by the Holy Spirit, the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit coming on the apostles. And you remember in this context, this power is evident. And you had all these people from varying places come together for the purpose of observing Pentecost. And they're asking the question, how is it that we hear every man speak in our own language? The Holy Spirit had come upon the apostles. They're preaching and teaching the Word of Almighty God. In their preaching and teaching, they cite the prophet Joel, don't they? Going back to what Joel prophesied concerning the outpouring of the Spirit hundreds of years earlier. All of this closely connected with the establishment of the kingdom of God. So Peter then begins preaching the crucified Christ. He said that Christ was put to death, crucified by lawless hands, but God had raised him up. Then you remember he cites David, doesn't he? He said, men and brethren, let me speak to you freely about the patriarch David. That he's both dead and buried. His tomb's with us to this day. And then he says that David was a prophet. And knowing that God swore to him that he would raise up the Christ, listen to him, to sit on his throne. Peter there making the connection. That goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said to David, I'm going to build a kingdom. It will be an eternal kingdom. It will come through your bloodline. And David here, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is a link in this spiritual entity. So when you come to Acts chapter 2, you've got all these people together. They're hearing the gospel for the very first time in all of its fullness. They've been indicted because they had taken part in the crucifixion of Christ. And the Bible says that Peter makes the connection between David and this kingdom. And that Jesus, as the King of kings, is now seated upon this throne. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. And because of that, he said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the one who is to reign and to rule over the hearts of men. He is the Christ in the sense He is the Anointed One, the Messiah to come. Then the Bible says in verse 37, When they heard this, they were pricked or cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the other apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, You need to repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What was it Nathan the prophet said about the Christ and His kingdom? 
that God would establish a kingdom. This kingdom would exist forever. The eternal kingdom of Almighty God. And he said it would be through the Christ and in His kingdom that people would enjoy what? The forgiveness of sins. Pardon. Listen again to what Nathan said to David in the long ago. I'll be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with blows of the sons of men. Through Jesus, and through Jesus alone, redemption abounds. So what about the reality of the kingdom? Well, according to Acts chapter 2, the kingdom exists. It exists because Jesus purchased it with His blood. In the first century, the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints in Colossae. And he talked about how they had been delivered out of the power of darkness. Now listen to this. And translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So number one, to understand that redemption resides in the kingdom, doesn't it? Well, if redemption resides in the kingdom, what does it take to get into the kingdom? Well, salvation is said to be in Christ, exclusively in Christ, isn't it? Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. On Pentecost Day, when Peter and the other apostles preached, who did they hold before the people? Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Matter of fact, he said, A man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in your midst. It was Jesus that said in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Following the establishment of the church, the apostles said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation exclusive to Jesus, but not exclusive only to Jesus, but also exclusive to the church that Jesus bought and purchased with His blood. When those people on Pentecost Day obeyed the gospel, and what was it Peter said that they needed to do? Well, they believed in Jesus already. They knew who the Son of God was. But they were instructed to repent and to be baptized. When they were baptized into Christ, the Bible says in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So where are the saved? The saved are where? They're in Christ. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, how do you get into Christ? The only way the Bible tells us we can get into Christ is we've got to be baptized into Him. Well, why do we need to be baptized into Christ? Because Jesus shed His blood in death, didn't He? He redeemed us by His blood. We enjoy the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So when we're baptized into Christ, we contact that blood. But we have to go where it was shed, shed in death, John 19, 34 and 35. So Paul said, Know ye not that all you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His what? Into His death. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we all baptized, listen to him, into one body. So here's my question. We think about the prophecy that was given by Nathan the prophet concerning the kingdom of God, the kingdom that ultimately Jesus founded and that He is the foundation of, that He is the face of. How many kingdoms, how many churches do we read about in the New Testament that are authorized by God? There's only one. There's only one church authorized 
to exist on planet earth. No other churches. Are there identifying marks of the New Testament church? Well, absolutely. One of which would be the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. I mean, you go back and look at Acts chapter 2. When those people cried out and asked, what shall we do? Peter didn't recite some quote-unquote sinner's prayer that is so often propagated in the religious world today, did he? So if we're not following the apostles' doctrine and we're not obeying the doctrine that has been delivered unto them, are we a member of the church that we read about in the Scriptures? How could we be? You know, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, There is one Spirit and one body. The one Spirit revealed the one faith unto the apostles. The one faith reveals unto us the one Lord, who was the Son of the one Father. Now think about this for a minute. Paul said, There is one Spirit, there is one faith, there is one Lord, and based upon this one faith, we read about the one body. Well, how many lords are there? There's just one Lord. Well, how many spirits are there? There's just one Spirit. If there's just one Lord, one faith, and there's just one baptism, and that one baptism puts us into the one body, then there's only one body. And the one body is the church. Well, how do I know that? Because in Ephesians 1, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Any church that began outside the city of Jerusalem is not the church you read about in the Bible. Any church that legislates anything other than what the apostles said in Acts chapter 2 in terms of entering the kingdom is not the New Testament church. If you hear somebody tell you all you need to do is pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, accept Him into your heart, and you'll be saved, I can tell you right now, that's not what the apostles said. Did they know what they were talking about? Jesus said they would be guided into all truth, John 16, 13. He gave them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The early church followed the apostles' doctrine, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So there is only one church. So look around in the world today. How many churches do you see? Thousands upon thousands. Was that God's intent? In the very shadow of the cross, you know what Jesus did? He prayed for unity among all them that would believe on Him through the words of the apostles. And Paul said the only way to rectify division is for us to all speak the same thing. The reason why you have a multiplicity of churches and varying doctrines and churches wearing varying names is because we're not all speaking the same thing. Just let that sink in for a minute. What would you think if I got up on Sunday morning and I said, you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven, but Sunday night I said, you know what, you don't need to be baptized. Just say the sinner's prayer and you'll be saved. And then on Wednesday night, I said, you know, the Bible says there's one body. Then the following Sunday, I said, you know what? God authorizes all kinds of churches. Well, number one, I wouldn't be preaching the truth. And I sure wouldn't be preaching the truth here very long. And yet, I mean, we see it, don't we? You get that, don't you? 
You've got all these churches that are preaching different doctrines, wearing different names, and yet if we did that in the same building, we'd say something's wrong here. So why can't we make the connection when it comes to the New Testament church? The reason is because we haven't examined what the record says. You know when you buy a car, when you buy an automobile, you get a title and registration. And you get a warranty, don't you? If you're pulled over by the police, they'll ask for your driver's license and registration, won't they? In other words, they won't see the paperwork on your car. So let me ask you this question. As a child, as, as somebody who is here today, do you have the paperwork that backs up the church you belong to right now? Do you have the paperwork? The paperwork is right here. It's called the Word of God. I can tell you, I can tell you what I did to become a Christian. I can read about it right here. I can tell you about the church that I belong to. I can read about it right here. I can tell you that I have hope in heaven because I can read about it right here. It's my title. It's my paperwork. If you don't have paperwork with regard to the church you're in, if you can't prove it from Scripture, you're not in the right church. And somebody says, you know, that's pretty hard. Well, you know what, sometimes, sometimes we need to just step back, take a deep breath, examine what the Bible says, put it under a microscope, and then draw our conclusions. So with regard to the everlasting kingdom of God, there's only one kingdom. There's only one king. And only those who have obeyed the voice of the king enter the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? Except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The new birth puts us in to the new, into the body. It's in that context that we enjoy a new beginning, new blessings. So my question to you today, are you a member of the kingdom that you read about in Scripture? Are you a part of the one body? Somebody says, well, it really doesn't matter. It matters. Because in Ephesians 5.23, the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the body. So if He's only promised to save the body, that means if you're not in the body, you're not among the saved. What would you need to do? Well, just what we said a minute ago. Repent, be baptized. Let God put you in the church. You don't have to be voted into the church. You don't have to make a request. No, God will do that. And then be faithful till death. The promise is the crown of life. If you're here today, you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, won't you come home? Believing that God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.